My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hello, Sunrise. Good to be with you here today. I'm Pastor Shane. I serve as the administrative pastor at Sunrise, part of the teaching team. And I'm excited to continue this series called Unlikely Heroes. I hope you've been having as much fun in this series as I have been. I had particularly had a lot of fun last week when Pastor Taylor was teaching about insane courage and, and embarrassing bravery, the story of Benaiah. Have you even ever heard of Benaiah before last week? He, he, followed a, he pursued a lion and killed a lion on a, snowy, on a pit on a snowy day. I mean, what insane courage. And, and, and then even better than that, right here among us at sunrise, we had, we had Mandy and Sampy Brown who, who left a come comfortable, normal, you know, American suburban life and followed God's call across the waters to the Basque region of Spain to proclaim Jesus' good news to an, a group of people, the Basque people who don't, there aren't a lot of Jesus followers among them. They don't know the, the, the way of Jesus. And wow, what a great story. If I could sum up Pastor Taylor's message last week, it was basically go for it. You know, God has this big world to be a part of and he's got this grand story to be a part of. Go for it. You know, with insane courage, embarrassing bravery. It's an excellent message. If you didn't catch it, please go online and catch that. And this week's message to get started, I just wanted to give you a heads up that one way to look at the contrast this, week's, this week to last week is this week's message is basically the photo negative of last week. It'd be one way to think about it because, you know, the, the unlikely hero that we're going to take a look at this week, um, from her life, we're going we're to learn an important truth. It's really important for us to hear in our age because... As I see it, there is a subtle yet difficult lie, debilitating lie, that many Christians, especially here in America, believe. And the lie goes something like this. Follow Jesus and your life will turn out well. Put your trust in Jesus and your life will turn out the way you want it to. You know, you'll, whatever, whatever it is, you'll have a great marriage, you'll, you'll have a job that pays well and utilizes your gifts, you'll, you'll have kids who behave themselves. Uh, yeah, that's a big one, right? You'll, you'll be mostly comfortable and, and nothing that you can't handle will, will come your way. Have you ever heard that given, you know, that God won't give you more than you can handle? Some people even say that's in the Bible. Until something you can't handle does come your way. And it doesn't seem like God is much interested in doing anything about it. Maybe that's happened to you. And at first, 
you, you think, well, maybe I offended God in some way. And so you pray harder and you, you search your life for any sin that you need to confess. You, you go to church more regularly. You read your Bible. You, you try your best to follow God's ways. And nothing seems to work. The situation, the circumstance only gets worse. And doubt begins to creep in and and this, for many, time, for many people, this kind of this wet blanket of despair just seems to cover everything. It feels so suffocating. And questions begin to bubble up. Is God trustworthy? Is God even there at all? My, my best friend in life is a guy by the name of Eric. Eric and I met 25 years ago now. We both lived in Arkansas at the time. We worked for the same organization. Uh, I lived there in Arkansas for 10 years. We worked closely together. We became great friends. And, and even when we moved away to come up here to, to Hillsboro to, to pastor a church, we, we, he and I maintained a deep heart friendship. And about 10 years ago, Eric contacted me and he said, hey, you know, I, I'm thinking God's calling me to pastor. And, and so he went in the process of leaving a, a really successful executive level job. He was good at it. He was in all the world's trappings. He was, he was living a great life. And, and he, he sensed God was calling him to pastor. And so he went through the process of searching and looking. And he, and he got called to this church in Austin, Texas. Pause for a moment. Land of the Longhorns. Yeah, yeah. If you don't know by now, I bleed or burn orange. But he moved to Austin, took his family. He, had, his, he and his wife had five kids at home. They left a daughter in college. It was still in Arkansas. And they left on this great adventure. And they, when they got there and they got involved in the church, they realized there's a little more difficulties going on than, than they anticipated. And there's a lot of challenges that he had to face. And over the next few years, he, he worked really hard and there was a lot going on. And, and he managed to make some changes in a way that set that church in a new course. It was really exciting. And, and unfortunately, the course that he helped send that church on meant he no longer had a job. Uh, now he, so he ended up leaving the church. He got, he got sent out well. He got a great severance package. I mean, they cared for him really well. They left well. It was a great story, but still, God, are you in this? And so they prayed, and, and they, they, they sensed God calling them to Oklahoma. Uh, I know that sounds a little strange, God calling anybody to Oklahoma, but I, I was born in Oklahoma, so good things come from there. But they called to Oklahoma and Oklahoma City, and then they, they prayed, and they okay, this is what God's calling us to do. And so they put their home on the market, sold like that in a day or so. They got for way more money than they bought it for only a couple years prior. I mean, that's a sign of God's, call, God's providence, right? His provision. And they moved to Oklahoma. And a year went by, and nothing, no job, couldn't find anything. He still sensed God calling him a pastor, and so he looked at churches there, and when it wasn't anything in that area, it was kind of regionally and then nationally interviewed, had lots of conversations, nothing. Well, maybe I'm not supposed to pastor. So he started looking at some other things and careers and interviews and tried some things, and nothing happened after even a year. And then another year went by, nothing he watched his savings, his life savings, including 401k and everything, just burn down to where he was now mowing lawns to earn enough money to put groceries on the table. I, just watching my friend from afar, I mean, I watch these wide swings of emotion of, you know, this, this joy to despair, to this anger, to, to calm, to this peace, to, to doubt, I mean, all over. And after two years, I saw my friend reach a this level of despair and anger I've never seen in 25 years of knowing him. Now you need to know, Eric's one of the good guys. 
He's one of the godliest men I have ever met. He's a loving husband. He's a doting father. He's a really good worker, hard worker, successful. Uh, just to give you an idea, you know, he and his wife, they, after the three biological children, adopted three more children, biracial, uh, with special needs, because they were the kids that nobody else wanted. That's the kind of people they are. That's the kind of person he is. He is... He follows Jesus more passionately than 99.9% of the people I've ever met in my life. It made me, when I was walking with him through that, it made me just want to cry out, God, where are you? How could you allow this for one of your children who loves you? But Eric's story's not alone. He's not alone in that. It's not unique. One ancient author coined the term the dark night of the soul to describe his experience of God's abject absence in his time of need. And many others have adopted that phrase to describe their experience. Sadly, sadly, many people give up on God during such times. Maybe, maybe in a flurry of anger or likely more common, just a gradual decline until one day they say, I just no longer believe in a good present, loving God. Maybe that's where you are today. I don't know, maybe you stumbled onto this or maybe you're just, this is your last grasp and you're wondering where God is and, and you need to hear this message. You need to hear from this unlikely hero. Because when dark nights come to us, they often, we often experience them as a surprise, but any honest reading of the Bible would show that we shouldn't be surprised when hard times come. I mean, in the story of the Bible, person after person, including Jesus himself, experienced dark nights of the soul where they experienced God's absence. Even more so, rather than merely allowing them, oftentimes it seems like God's initiating them. When we pay attention to these stories, we can come to understand that God has more in mind for us than your happiness or my happiness. He has more in mind for us than our good dreams coming true. In fact, there's a surprising and challenging truth that I want to hone in on today. Here's how I'll put it. Sometimes God will shatter your dreams to open your heart to a greater dream. Sometimes God will shatter your dreams to open your heart to a greater dream. Well, the story of the unlikely hero in the Bible we want to look at today captures this truth particularly well. Her name is Naomi, and her story is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find that story there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight, I'm just going to hop through the story. It's four chapters, too much for us to read all in its entirety. I want to hop through the story specifically to focus on this person of Naomi. There's other storylines that you can follow through. It's an amazing story overall, one of the best stories in the entire Bible. But I want to focus today particularly on Naomi's story. So here's how the story begins. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, Moab, they settled there. So here we have Naomi. She left Bethlehem with her husband and two sons because of this famine. And they headed to Moab for what they 
thought would be a short season. And you may wonder, where, do, where does that come from? Well, where it said, when it says they went to live in the country of Moab, the original language, the Hebrew, the word live had a temporal sense to it. It was, it was used, often translated, a sojourn. And so there was a sense that Naomi likely left with the hope or maybe even the presumption that she would return not too long later with her husband and her sons, maybe a couple of daughters-in-law and a few grandkids thrown in. But then the first shoe dropped. Her husband died. That would not have been easy. But she still had two sons. And those two sons went on to marry two Moabite women that now became her daughters-in-law. But then the other shoe dropped. Both sons died. Now she was a widow in a foreign land, in a culture where widowed women had few resources and little hope. Her likely outcome was a life of severe poverty. So she did the only thing she possibly could. She returned to Bethlehem, to her homeland, empty-handed. At first, her two daughters-in-law went with, with her to, to accompany her, but she basically tried to convince them, no, 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 you don't want to come with, with me. You'll be much happier and successful hanging out with somebody else beside me. My life has no hope. One of those daughters-in-law followed her and her, her advice, but the other one, Ruth, didn't. And, and I want to focus in on Ruth's statement of loyal love. It's one of the most beautiful statements of love, not only in the Bible, but I would say in all of human history. In verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, she says this, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. What a statement of loyal love. And Ruth and, and Naomi's response was basically a shrug. Whatever. I mean, she was so full of despair. Her dreams were shattered. Nothing else mattered. And at the end of chapter one, we hear a poignant words, a poignant description, a very real despair that accompanied Naomi's shattered dreams. In verses 19 through 21 of chapter 1, we see, So the two of them continued on their journey, and when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, which in the Hebrew meant bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Do you hear the despair? Do you feel it? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've walked that road like Naomi's walking back to Bethlehem. Maybe you're walking it right now. And it's here that we encounter our first truth when it comes to shattered dreams. Shattered dreams are difficult, but necessary doorway for spiritual growth. Shattered dreams are a difficult, but necessary doorway for spiritual growth. If we hang on to this truth, it's more than a shattered dream. Realizing this is a hard truth to hear. It's even a harder truth to experience. But here's the reality. Yes, shattered dreams can turn you away from God, turns people away from God. 
But shattered dreams can also give you a glimpse, they give you access to God's goodness in a way that good times will, will never allow. And that's what's about to happen with Naomi. Though God seemed absent during Naomi's shattered dream, he was actually at work. And we get a hint of this at the end of chapter 1 of Ruth, where we see this. It said, they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you look at that and you go, so, right? What's going on there? Well, God, God was at work when he brought Naomi home at the beginning of the barley harvest. His work is still obscured, and so you need to hang with me on this. But here is where we encounter a second truth. You see, lost in the clutter and noise of trouble and despair, here's the truth that we counter. God is at work even when he seems absent. God is at work even when he seems absent. You see, everything that happens in the next couple of chapters hinged on this seemingly incidental, unplanned, unimportant detail, this barley harvest. This is a foreshadowing of the work God is about to do. So he's going out, he's still at work, but it's now obscured. Naomi can't see it. So we arrive in chapter two and his work becomes a little clearer for Naomi's because of Naomi's loyal companion, Ruth. You see, Ruth begins to take action when she arrives back. When they arrive in Bethlehem, Ruth takes action to care for Naomi. And and isn't that how often God works through the humble, loving care of the community of his people? It's an amazing way that God works. You see, in her naive simplicity, Ruth heads off to do good for Naomi. And that's where we encounter a second hint of God's work. It's so easy to read right on past. It's found in chapter 2, verse 3. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, if you, if you, if you would, I'd invite you to circle this, that phrase in your Bible, as it happened, as it happened. I want to highlight that because that's a loaded phrase, there is no happenstance about it at all. This is, this is a hint of God at work. There's, God was quietly accomplishing his work of redemption in Naomi's life. Because Ruth didn't know it, but she had stepped foot into the wonders of God's providential care. Hundreds of years before this, the nation of Israel was given, were given the laws of God, their, their kind warnings and instructions. They're given to them through, the, through Moses and hidden in there, not hidden, but, but one of the instructions that's found in there was this practice called gleaning. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19. This is what it says. It says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So one of the ways God's people would reflect the heart of God was this practice of not scooping up everything they could out of the field. Instead, to leave some for the poor and the foreigners like Ruth and Naomi. This was how God would care for the poor which meant this was how God would provide for Ruth and Naomi. So after Ruth gleans the field, she returns home with the bounty. And it isn't just a little bit either. She had come across this field from a man who left a lot still on the ground. And so this was, this was not only a provision, this was an abundance for them. 
And as a result, Naomi's bitter heart begins to stir with a little hope. In chapter 2, verse 19, she asks Ruth, where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. Naomi even acknowledges there that God was the one, the Lord was the one who was providing. And then, lo and behold, on the heels of that one amazing provision comes another, as we continue reading in verse 19. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man whose field she had worked in. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Naomi's hope, I hope you hear it, is, is really stirring up here. She's basically saying, wait a minute, he, he's one of our redeemers. You're thinking, whoa, what's, what's so big about that? What's going on here? Well, this is another example of God's gracious provision, his kind instructions back in the law of God in Leviticus, this time in chapter 25. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative should buy it back for him. This is was, this was a practice called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. When somebody hit hard times, the nearest relative would step in and help, not for their personal game, but for the one who, who, who lost their, their land, or in this case, who died. They, they would do it in the memory of the one who died. Naomi realized that she wasn't without hope. After all, she had a redeemer. Far from absent, God was quietly at work around her. And Naomi has begun to notice and hope begins to really take root in her heart. You see, Naomi understood God's ways. She had known them. She knew about the kinsman and redeemer. She knew about the practice of gleaning. In chapter 3, she begins to participate in the story as she begins to put her trust in God's promises. She begins to play a little bit of a matchmaker between Boaz and Ruth. In other words, with faith and hope, she partners with God in the story God is telling and it went pretty well. Ruth catches Boaz's eye. Romance begins to bloom. And we see a third truth about shattered dreams. We get in on God's story when we trust his ways by faith rather than by sight. For, for, for Naomi, her dreams are still shattered. She still doesn't have any provisions. But she's trusting God's promises by faith. And things appear to start going well for her. But then, as often happens, right before it seems like everything's going to work, they encounter this huge obstacle that seems to throw everything into doubt and jeopardy. Even though Boaz has come to love Ruth and wants to provide for her and Naomi, another man was actually first in line to become their redeemer. So Naomi's faith is challenged yet again. Would she trust God? Or would she return to her own way of thinking and her own uh, manipulating of circumstances? We see her faithful response to Ruth at the end of chapter 3, verse 18. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man, meaning Boaz, won't rest until he has settled things today. We see Naomi's resilient faith here and work and, and it, despite her loss and suffering. On the surface, she was, she was putting her trust and her confidence in Boaz, but there was a deeper confidence that she was placing in her God. She had seen God working in her difficult experiences, and she continued to put her trust in him. And God accomplished his work. 
He overcame the obstacles. And the result we see in chapter 4. In verse 13, we read this. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife and he slept with her. The Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. The story ends the way we like stories to end. And they lived happily ever after. But the story's not quite done yet. The author of the story, even though Ruth's life you know, seems to come full circle here, the author returns to Naomi and to Naomi's God. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, at last, Naomi has a son again. You catch that? At last, Naomi has a son again. And for you old enough to remember the great Paul Harvey, you can say with me, and now you know the rest of the story. Naomi got to participate in God's grand story of redemption because the story ends with, with chapter 4, verse 17, they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. David, King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And not only the grandfather, not, not only of, of David, but all the way down through history to the son of David, Jesus, who became kinsman redeemer for all of mankind when he came to live and die and rise again for your sins and mine. Naomi got to participate in God's grand story of redemption for all of humanity. And here we arrive at the fourth truth about shattered dreams. God births new dreams out of desolate places for those who put their hope in him. God births new dreams out of those desolate places for those who put their trust in him. Now please understand, Naomi was still a widow she was still the mother of two dead sons. Her dreams still lay shattered. But God had birthed a new dream, a better dream for Naomi. She got to partner with him in the, his grand redemptive story. See, my friends, we live in an era of feel-good Christianity. And because of that, we can easily come to a wrong view of, of the spiritual journey we think of suffering as abnormal. We think that, that, that suffering is the evidence of a lack of faith or that, something, that we did something wrong. We think God's immeasurable goodness is delivered to us through fewer trials and more blessings. We've grown impatient with suffering. But our blessing-based, happiness-centered understanding of goodness is far too small. It leads to small dreams and small prayers to a small God. Now, please don't get me wrong. It's, it, it's not that God is capricious and is just looking around for somebody's life to ruin. Let's see, I think, oh, yes, I'm going to destroy Shane's dreams today. No, no, far from that. You see, God has a joy in mind for us but in order for us to get at that joy, he needs to rescue us from the small earthly dreams that we cling to so readily. 
Well, in this series, as you know, we're not only looking at, insi- at seemingly insignificant people in the Bible, we're looking at people right here among us at sunrise. Because you know, it's so easy to think that what happens here on the stage on Sundays, uh, or, you know, that's the most important thing about the church, and maybe pastors and worship leaders are somehow more important than anybody else. But that is so far from the truth. The true work of the church is going on right now wherever you are and whatever you're doing especially if you are enduring difficult circumstances with hope, with faith, with love. And so as we're doing in the series, we want to, I want, today I want to introduce somebody whose story in, in many ways parallels that of Naomi. Her name is Jenny Bronlewy, and let's, let's catch a bit of her story. Hi, my name is Jenny, and I've been a part of Sunrise since the very beginning. I did not grow up in a Christian home, but when I was about 11 or 12, I gave my life to Christ. My dream when I was little was to grow up, to get married, and to have kids. So I did. Um, I got married at 20, and then over the next eight and a half years, had four kids. And um, it was shortly, a few years after that, I got a call early one morning that said uh, my husband had collapsed while playing basketball. So I left for the hospital and I met our pastor there, but the staff really didn't want me in there. And so they really wanted me to leave. So the pastor and I went off into another room so we could pray. And I can remember praying, God, you know my heart, but I want your will, whatever that is. I don't know if any of you have ever had to do this, but how do you tell your kids that their dad just died? So I went home and went in the house, and my oldest asked me how her dad was, and I said, well, your daddy's up in heaven with Jesus. Well, the two older ones started crying immediately, but the five-year-old, he was amazed. It's like, wow, my dad is up in heaven with Jesus, not really realizing he's not coming back. So once that set in, he too was crying. The youngest, she just wanted breakfast because she was just two. My family and my husband's family were very supportive. We had a very supportive church. And so they helped me to get by day by day. And the days turned into a couple years. And we had created a new normal. And then someone had once told me, they said, you're not grieving because you're not mad at God. Well, how could you be mad at a God who wanted the very best for you and loved you? I remember someone had given me a tape and I listened to the words and the song said, I don't pretend to like it or understand it, but I've known him far too long to quit trusting him now. He works all things, all things for our good. So the years go by and then there's kids. And it seems like every family has one the one that wants to push the limits and wants things to go their way. Well, I had one of those. Once that child turned 18, they were on their own. And I think one of the hardest times I had in my life was I'd gone to bed one night and about 12.30 in the morning, there was uh, the doorbell ringing and knocking I went to the door and there stood my child saying, I don't have anywhere to go. Can I come and stay here? 
and my mother's heart wanted to let him in, but I knew that wasn't what was best, so I had to say no. And I had to watch that child turn, walk down the street in the drizzle, and sit under a tree at the corner. I just, I sobbed, and I ended up calling my sister-in-law because it was too hard, and she came and she picked him up, and she took him home there for the night. That child still struggles with addiction. They um, have been in and out of prison, and I'm still waiting for them to surrender completely. One thing God, too, has taught me is this isn't my burden to carry, and so I have to give it over to God and let him carry that for me. Jesus tells us in John 15 that if we remain in him and he in us, that we will bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can't do anything. So I'm just encouraging you to, to hold fast through the hard times and Christ will be there for you. Jenny's dreams, her childhood dreams of being married and having kids. Being married, it's, the dream was shattered at a, way earlier than she wanted. Her dream of her kids turning out, the picture, we all have pictures of what we think we want our kids to turn out, and the dream in many ways lay shattered. And yet Jenny clung to a greater dream, and as a result learned more of the heart of God, learned to love like Jesus, and, and to have her life bear fruit as a result. When we choose to trust in Jesus, we have no guarantees about how our, how our lives will turn out. But if we read God's word honestly, we can know that difficult times will come our way. And here's the catch. For our good. For our good. Because sometimes God will shatter your dreams in order to open your heart to a greater dreams. My friends, I don't know what you face today. Maybe you're in the middle of a tremendous hardship. And we have so many to choose from right now, right? You know, coronavirus, economic troubles, social upheaval, and, and racial injustice. I mean, so you pick it. It's going on. So I just want to invite you. Put your hope in Jesus. Cling to his goodness. Trust in his ways. Hold to his truth. Wait for his provision. One day, all of us who put our hope in Jesus will look back at everything that has happened, including those dark nights of the soul. And the only response that we can be able to have is, God, you are so good. Thank you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we see dimly. You see everything. You see it through the lens of our kinsman redeemer, our closest relative who, who did everything it takes to walk through the sin and brokenness of this world. We simply need to put our trust in you, no matter our circumstances. And so I just want to pray for anyone right now who's facing difficult, broken, troubled trials, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it. Would you meet with them? Would, would you grant them confidence in your presence, whether they can feel it or not, whether they see evidence of it or not, that they would have the faith to cling and the hope to cling to you long enough to see your goodness, long enough to see the wonder of who you are? Would you make that true? In Jesus' name, amen.